following message is presented by Erie Evangelical Free Church in Erie, Illinois. We are a church that exists for the good of our community and are proud to share the gospel of Jesus Christ as we seek to know him and make him known. I'm going to give you a couple stats as we get going. Uh, a couple of truths that you know. These probably won't surprise any of you. Um, but first one is this. <clears throat> Did you know that if you drive and text at the same time, you are 23 times more likely to be in a car accident. So quick show of hands, who texted and drove this week? Don't, don't do it. Don't do it. Did you know that by walking as little as 20 minutes, and I've even seen some studies that say walking as little as 12 minutes, three times a week, helps lower your chances of premature death by up to 25%. Did you know that by doing nothing other than cutting out soda from your diet, and even diet sodas, if you cut that out, you significantly reduce your risk for heart disease, for diabetes, for obesity. None of these are new, right? You've, you've heard these things. And yet, we can all probably look at those and go, uh, oh yeah, I don't always do that. Right? It's hard to do the things that sometimes we know are good for us, sometimes the things that we know are best for us. Why is that? Because there are so many other options out there, right? There are other options that are easier, that are immediately satisfying, that are just more appealing to us. And they keep us from doing what we know is best. Because the reality is this. If you remember nothing else from today, remember these three words. Faithfulness is difficult. Amen? I know we're not charismatic here, but you can say amen to that. Faithfulness is difficult because faithfulness is difficult. In today's passage, Jacob is approaching the end of this mission that he's been sent on, one that required his faithful obedience in the face of plenty of opposition. And as he sees God begin to deliver on his promises, Jacob shows us how we can stay the course, how we can stay faithful in the daunting, sometimes toilsome journey that we are on in our lives. And the question I want you to ask yourself is this, how do I engage in the difficulty of biblical faithfulness when everything in my world and sometimes everything in my own flesh fights against it? We find out in Genesis 29, 1 through 14, in Jacob's arrival at this place called Paden Aram. And as Jacob arrives here, he gives us three means of faithfully engaging God's call in our lives. And the first is this. If we want to faithfully engage in God's calling in our lives in the face of all the difficulties and all the struggles that may come against us, number one, we go confidently. We go confidently. <clears throat> verses one through, it says one through seven on the screen, but we're going to go one through, uh, verses one through six. It says, Jacob resumed his journey 
and went to the eastern country. He looked and saw a well in a field. Three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it because the sheep were watered from this well. But a large stone covered the opening of the well. The shepherds would roll the stone away from the opening of the well and, the, and water the sheep when all the flocks were gathered there. Then they would return the stone to its place over the well's opening. Jacob asked the men at, at the well, my brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they answered. Do you know Laban, grandson of Nahor? Jacob asked them. They answered, we know him. Is he well? Jacob asked. Yes, they said. And here is his daughter, Rachel, coming with his sheep. Okay, stop right there. We go confidently. Maybe one of the most important aspects of these first six verses comes right at the beginning of verse one. Verse one says, Jacob resumed his journey and went to the Eastern country. <clears throat> in, the, in the original language, the literal translation of this verse says, Jacob picked up his feet and went. Now that's significant because in the Hebrew language, picked up his feet is a figure of speech. That means he went with a resolute focus. He didn't just stumble along the way. He went with a purpose, with an intense focus, a conviction and a confidence. In fact, there are some scholars who read this and say, you could paraphrase this by saying, Jacob went with a spring in his step. Now remember, if you were here two weeks ago and we saw what just preceded this passage, Jacob was at Bethel. He was 50 miles into a 500 mile walk. He was alone. He had nothing with him. He was running for his life from his brother Esau. And yet he went with a spring in his step. He went with this resolute conviction and focus. Why? Because he remembered God's presence, God's promises, and God's power. And so he goes and he covers the last 450 miles or so of, of this journey. And when he reaches Paden Aram, which is the area in which he was sent, lay, there, there are shepherds out in the fields. And so Jacob shows up and he sees these shepherds watering, getting ready to water these flocks. But he reaches there just as Rachel shows up with Laban's flocks. God was showing Jacob, right? Think, think of this, right? A, a, a 450 mile walk, how much control do you have of what time exactly you get to a place? All right, some of us have trouble driving across town when we know what time we have to be there. But if you're just walking 450 miles, when are you gonna get there? You're gonna get there whenever you get there. Jacob shows up as there are shepherds getting ready to water the flocks and as Rachel walks onto the scene. Jacob immediately recognizes here that this is God divinely delivering on his promise to take him through this journey, to deliver him where he has been sent. He sees God's sovereign promise and God's purpose just as he arrives on the scene. Jacob 
in his journey was met with all kinds of opposition, all kinds of reasons why he shouldn't have gone. But he went confident in the Lord and he sees the fulfillment of God's promises. Our faithful pursuit of Jesus Christ in our lives will be met with all kinds of adversity as well. Maybe it's gonna be from a culture around you that wants to distract you from the truth of who God is and what God has said. Maybe it's from friends who want you to accept their standards of morality over God's. Maybe it's gonna be from your own flesh that just desperately wants to feel a certain way that God doesn't call you to. At every point of opposition, no matter where it comes from, no matter how big it is, no matter how small it is, every point of opposition, it will feel easier to just go with the opposition than it will to continually walk confidently and faithfully in the Lord, faithful to God's word, to God's holiness, to God's purposes. And you know what we call that? The fact that it feels easier to just give up and walk away than to live faithfully? And we call those moments temptation. The temptation is this seems easier. This seems more immediately gratifying. This seems better to me in the moment. So why don't I just go with that? It's temptation. And where does temptation come from? It comes from God, right? No, no? Oh, that's right, it doesn't. It comes from us. And we remember James chapter one, verse 14 and 15 says, each person is tempted. He's drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. See, we are tempted to walk away from faithfulness, not because God is too hard to follow, but because we are too weak. And because our evil desires say, oh, but I want this. We are tempted when our desires are the center of our focus. Right? And then that, that raises the question in our minds, well, okay, well then what will I do when every part of my heart, my mind, my flesh want to surrender to that temptation to give in and take the easy way out rather than travel the difficult road of faithfulness to the Lord? What's your answer going to be? And I'll tell you, it's going to come down to this, right? Whatever that temptation is, I don't know what the temptation is that you're going to face this week, today, before I'm done speaking this morning. I don't know what that temptation is going to be, but how you answer is going to come down to this one question. It's going to come down to what do you see and what do you accept as best, what do you define as best? Because if we define best as what is easy, what is comfortable, what, what gives me immediate gratification of my desires, then we will always fail to live faithfully. Because we have become the authors of what is best and we are broken, fallen, flawed people. But if like Jacob, God's holiness, God's goodness, and God's purposes are what is best, then we go forward confidently in faithfulness, in spite of all of the opposition against us, because we know that in spite of all that difficulty, there is what is best on the other side. 
There is what is best, not through us getting what we want, but through us being faithful to the Lord and walking confidently in his presence, his promises, and his power. Do we let the opposition hold us back from walking confidently in faithfulness to the Lord? Jacob shows us if we want to continue to walk faithfully, then we go confidently. We go with that confident vision of God's presence, promises, and power. But we continue in this passage and we see that with that kind of a vision set before us, with a confident walk ahead, it frees us up to then give generously. So number two, we give generously. Verses seven through 12 here says, then Jacob said, right? So he's, he's reached paid Aram. He's near the town of Haran where he was, he was headed for. He sees these shepherds out in the field. There's some sheep around. There's a well with a rock over the top of it. And he sees Rachel coming down the road with Laban's sheep. And it says, then Jacob said, look, it is still broad daylight. It's not time for the animals to be gathered. Water the flock, then go out and let them graze. But they replied, we can't until all the flocks have been gathered and the stone is rolled from the well's opening. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still speaking to them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. As soon as Jacob saw his uncle Laban's daughter, Rachel, with his sheep, he went up and rolled away the stone from the opening and watered his uncle's sheep Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept loudly. He told Rachel that he was her father's relative, Rebecca's son. She ran and told her father. We give generously. Again, if you've been with us, remember back to what we've learned of Jacob through the story of his life. In Genesis 25 and Genesis 27, Jacob revealed himself to be a fairly deceptive person, right? He's working the angles. He's maybe massaging the truth a little bit. Sometimes he flat out lies to get what he wants. But in Genesis 29, then we see a different side of Jacob. Not a deceiver, but a servant. See, the first thing he does here is he confronts the laziness of the shepherds. Why were the shepherds not watering the sheep? Because there was a stone over the top of the well. They want to wait till all the sheep are gathered, so they only have to move that stone once. It's not about what's best for the sheep. Jacob knows what's best for the sheep is that they roll the stone away, water the sheep, and then let them go graze. But these guys are like, no, 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 that's too much work. We don't get paid enough. That's beyond our pay grade. We'll just wait till everybody's here. We'll roll the stone away once. We'll give them all some water. We'll go about our business. Jacob's like, no, 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 this this is not right. So he confronts the laziness of the shepherds and he does so in eagerly serving Rachel, right? Because this is really why he wants this stone rolled away because Rachel's coming with his uncle's sheep. And he says, "I, I need to serve Rachel. And so he rolls the stone away so that her sheep can drink from the well. He sees Rachel, he serves her flock and he breaks down 
He meets her with weeping. This is not a sadness. This is a joy. He's weeping because God has fulfilled his promises. God has brought him to where he said he would bring him. He's weeping because God fulfills his promises. And Rachel then turns and runs to tell Laban of her cousin's arrival. Okay, now here's the thing. You could look at this story on the surface and you could look at Jacob and you could say, Jacob's still kind of selfish here. He's just trying to get what he wants. He sees Rachel and we're gonna find out next week that he's in love with Rachel. Like he sees her and he's like, ooh, she pretty. You could say he's trying to impress her. He's gonna show, he's gonna, you know, he's gonna flex a little bit. He's gonna roll that stone away by himself. Like, yeah, these guys, they didn't wanna roll the stone. I got you, Rachel, roll the stone away. You, you could look at it that, like that on the surface. The problem is the context of the passage doesn't allow you to see it that way. The context, everything that happens around this passage shows that he understands who God is. He understands what God is doing. And he sees God as responsible for bringing him to this place at this time for this purpose. And his response is one of worship of God. Yes, it serves Rachel. Yes, it serves his uncle's flocks, but he is worshiping God by giving of himself, by acting, by serving. This generous service is an act of worship. Generous service is always for the faithful believer an act of worship. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul writes to the church and he says, you will be enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. You will be enriched in every way for all generosity. He doesn't say give so that you will be accepted by God, right? He doesn't say give so that you'll look good to others. He says, you will be enriched, you will receive, but not that you'll be paid or you'll become wealthy beyond all imagination. No, he says, you give so that you will be enriched and produce thankfulness to God. He says, giving, the the truly generous heart in giving is glorifying God and producing thanksgiving for who he is through their acts of service. What he's saying is that our our lives are best when we give generously, not in order to gain something, but because it shows in concrete terms that all we have is a blessing from God and not our own. Every act of giving reflects gratitude to, to God, to the Father who gives to us. And what is the greatest act of giving? If you feel like you have nothing else in your life, you have at least one great gift that God has given to you. Jesus Christ. Because God knows, as we said, we're all tempted when our own evil desires drag us away. God knows the evil desires in our hearts. God knows that we are impure people at our very core. He knows that we run from him when we see something that seems better to us. 
He knows our sin. He knows our brokenness. And yet in all of that, he loved us so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who willingly left the throne of heaven to enter into this broken and flawed creation, to walk among a broken and flawed people, to be spit upon, to be slandered, to be put to death, nailed to a cross where he would bleed and suffer and die. This God who lived perfectly would die sacrificially to pay the penalty for our sin, a a, a payment that we could not make on our own, not our best efforts could pay that price. And yet Jesus did it for us so that when he rose from the tomb, three days later, he defeated death once and for all so that you and I could be reconciled before our God, made right before him, bought back from the penalty of our sin and death and bought into his holy, perfect family. You want your life to be enriched in every way? Understand the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our generosity is a recognition that all that we have is owed to God and belongs to him. We have been blessed. We have been enriched. Our job is now to turn it back to him. And so every act of service in our lives should be generous. That's why we give tithes and offerings. It's a way that we faithfully praise God for his provision in our lives. It's a recognition that every single cent that you and I have in our bank accounts, in our wallets, in our savings, in our 401ks, in whatever else we have, every cent, every possession, everything, it's not ours, it's God's. He has given it to us for a short time. God says, I'm gonna give you all of this stuff And we respond by saying, God, we we praise you. And because you've given us so much, we offer back to you. Tithes and offerings are a faithful means of generosity, right? And I know some of you are going, well, you're a pastor. You have to say that. You want us to give money to the church. Number one, yes. (laughs) Yes, but not because I want you to give money to the church because I know that you will be blessed through the generosity to God. So number one, yes, I do want you to give to the church. Number two, I don't care if you give to this church. You don't like that I say that to you? Fine, go give somewhere else. But return to the Lord what is his, that portion of his as a faithful act of obedience and celebration of the gifts he has given to you. We give tithes and offerings to faithfully praise God for his provision. We give our time and energy to our brothers and sisters in Christ, to the world around us, to celebrate, to rejoice in God's enduring presence in our own lives. Right? That's why we do ministry. It's not because we're trying to earn God's favor. It's not because we're trying to look a certain way. It's because we understand God has loved us and saved us, and we want others to know the richness of that life as well. And so we give our time and our energy in 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter's writing, and, and, and in verse 7, he says, the end of all things is near. And then he goes on to give some instruction. And in verse 10, one of these instructions, he says, just as each one of you has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. 
Peter says, God has welcomed you. He has saved you. He has filled you with his power and with his spirit. He says, now go and share that with others. The point is this. We are called to live lives that reflect God's generosity towards us. And we're called to reflect that out into our families, into the church, and into the world in which we live. But we always have to ask ourselves the question, do the ways that I spend my time and my energy and my resources, do they point to an attitude of consumption? I got what I want, I need more, I need more, I need more. Or do they point to a desire to see God glorified? through all that we think, do, and say. We go confidently. We give generously. Finally, Jacob shows us one more means to engaging in the the fullness of God's mission before us. And in verses 13 and 14, we see that if we want to fully engage, then we receive gratefully. We receive gratefully. Verses 13 and 14, Verse 13 says, when Laban heard the news about his sister's son, Jacob, he ran to meet him, hugged him and kissed him. Then he took him to the house and Jacob told him all that had happened. Laban said to him, yes, you are my own flesh and blood. And then the second half of of this verse kind of gives us a bridge into the next passage, but it says, and Jacob stayed with his uncle for a month. So what happens here? Jacob is joyously welcomed with hugs and kisses by his uncle. If if, if you're trying to picture this, think of like Christmas dinner at grandma's house. When you show up, oh baby, it's so good to see you. The big hugs, the big kisses, and you're like, get off. This is what he gets coming into Laban's house. This great hug, this kiss, this welcome. And then he says in verse 14, you are my own flesh and blood. And again, some scholars believe that this is Laban actually giving a statement of adoption. He says, not only are you my nephew, but I welcome you into my family as a full-fledged member of my house. And then Jacob stays with his uncle, says for a month before we get into the next part of this story. And as he stays with his uncle for a month, I want you to show me, I want you to look in this text. I want you to see where Jacob asks if he can stay with his uncle for a month. I want you to see where Jacob says, well, I can work for you for a month if you'll let me stay here. I want you to show me where Jacob puts some stipulations on, well, I'll come if you'll do this for me. No, he's welcomed into the house And he receives this welcome with gratitude to the Lord who provided for him on his journey and brought him to this place at this time for this purpose. He accepts the gift from his uncle of being welcomed into the family and of being given a place to stay. Let me ask you, what makes you feel most loved? Think about that for a second. What makes you feel most loved? Is it when you give or when you receive? Because here's the thing. I'm betting if every single one of us is honest, we say we feel the most loved when we receive. Whether that's a hug, maybe for you it's a pat on the back, 
Maybe it's a kind, encouraging word. Maybe it's a, a, a note that's dropped your way that just is, is encouraging, that builds you up. A word of affection or affirmation. Maybe it's a gift. Maybe it's, I don't know, but it's, it's probably something that you received. See, we are blessed to express our love for others when we give, but we feel loved by receiving love. God created you and me. He created every single one of us with the purpose to live in relationship with others and to feel complete in our relationships by expressing affection towards one another. And so when we accept love, we are uniquely strengthened to continue the mission ahead of us. We are encouraged to go with confidence and to give generously when we feel loved. And I think this is something, I think this is something many of us struggle with even more than we realize. And, and I'll be the first to say, I'm at the top of the list of offenders in this. We are not good at receiving love and help and service from others. And sometimes it's with good reason. Like we, we feel like, well, I don't want to impose. I don't want to bother someone else, right? They've got other things that they're worried about. They have things going on in their lives. But the biblical truth is that when we don't allow others to help us, we rob them of the joy of their service. In Hebrews chapter 13 Verse six, a, a, a verse we talk about many times, but it says, don't neglect to do what is good and to share for God is pleased with such sacrifices. Right, Hebrews 13, six, we often come to this and we talk about, yes, we are called to serve, right? It says, don't neglect to do what is good and, and make sure you share with others, which, which we should think about in terms of our giving to others. But you know what's necessary in order to share something? Someone to share with. You don't share with yourself. That's not sharing. I don't know what it is, but it's not sharing. It requires others to receive that service. See, when we don't let others serve us, we rob them of the joy of their service. And true, we don't want to use people. We don't want to take advantage of people. That's not at all what we're talking about. But when we allow others to help us in our time of need, we are allowing them the blessing of serving. This is all just a reflection of the purpose of God's family. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, God is instructing the Israelites on what they do in terms of lending money to other Israelites, right? Within the family of faith, within their godly family. 
And he says to do it with joy and to not be stingy because God has already blessed them. And he says, and so you can serve others by blessing them, by being generous. And then in verse 11, he says, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. That is why I am commanding you, open your hand willingly to your poor and needy brother in your land. All right, once again, God's God's instructing them to be generous, to share, to give. But he says, it's your brother who is in need. We will all have those times where we are the one who gets to be generous, who has what we need, who gets to share. But every single one of us in this room will have plenty of times where we are the poor and the needy brother and sister. Maybe it's not financially. Maybe it's in terms of just feeling discouraged, feeling beaten up. Maybe it's a a physical need that, that we just need somebody to walk alongside us and help us with something. But whatever it is, we will all have those times when we need help. And everything in our pride, our selfish, arrogant pride, will say, no, I can do it all on my own. I'm okay. Don't worry about me. I'm good. And we will struggle and we will suffer alone when God has provided everything we need to be loved and cared for in that moment. See, if we are to fulfill our calling, we must be able to receive gratefully so that God's purposes can be fulfilled, purposes that that you and I are not equipped to handle or complete on our own, to accomplish by the strength of our own abilities or our own gifts, our own resources. And if we're gonna see the, the fullest joy of God's calling in our lives, then it will never revolve around me being better, being stronger, being more fit. We'll rely upon our place in God's family, in God's kingdom, and amongst God's people. The question I've been wrestling with on my own this week as I've prepared this is a question of where do I need to humble myself and accept help from others? Where are the places where I, I, I truly need help and it's been offered to me? And that doesn't mean I need to accept every single offer of help that comes my way. But where is it that I'm not saying, no, it's okay, I don't need help with this because I really don't? Or where where am I saying don't help me because I'm prideful and arrogant in that moment? If you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and if you are still drawing breath into your lungs today, then you have a mission and you have a calling and you have a purpose to serve the glory of God's kingdom, the beauty of Christ's redemption and the magnificence of the Holy Spirit's power at work in you and through you. And if you think that's not true, if you think your work is finished or that you really don't have any kind of calling in the kingdom, then we've already identified the first wave of opposition in your life. It's Satan's lies in your ears about who you are and who you're not. Because we have work to do, but we will be opposed. Both of those should be givens in the Christian faith. What's not a given in the Christian faith is how we respond. 
and how we respond faithfully when that opposition rises. Because we can respond in the flesh, feeling the weight of of pressure and judgment and fatigue and defeat. Or we can respond in the spirit and find the strength of Christ's redemption to go go on confidently, to give generously and to receive with gratitude. And if this is our way, we will know the victory, not of our strengths and our abilities, but the victory of Jesus Christ's life, death, resurrection, and eternal reign. And so church family, may we walk faithfully this week into God's calling, into his mission, into his purposes, into the opportunities that he is gonna put before us today, this week, this month, this year, and in the life ahead. And as we go, give, and receive, let us revel in the glory of God's majesty and share with the world around us the depth of Jesus' loving salvation as we follow the Holy Spirit through every moment of our lives. Let's pray together. Father God, you are so good and so absolutely incredible. And we don't fully comprehend who you are. And we will never fully comprehend who you are, the depth of your love, the the breadth of your majesty. We will at best scratch the surface. But Father, that's not a thought that, that defeats us. It's a thought that wells up joy and celebration in our hearts because the best we know of you, man, there is so much more there. And so Lord, we thank you for the ways you have loved us and cared for us, that you have welcomed us into your family, into your kingdom, have given us a purpose and a meaning and a mission and given us the strength, the ability, the the opportunities to fulfill that calling. You've surrounded us with brothers and sisters in Christ to walk alongside of us, to pick us up when we fall, to push us when we've hesitated, to give us wise counsel, to give us those things we need just at the right moment as you work in them and through them. Because Lord, we know that that your calling your mission, your purpose, that is always the absolute best in our lives. In our flesh, our world, everything will push back. But we know we can go on faithfully, even when faithfulness is difficult, because we serve you. We serve the God who is reigning and ruling over all things in all places and at all times, and we celebrate the victory of Jesus Christ through his life, his death, and his resurrection. Lord, we thank you and we praise you and we just ask that you continue to show us where the next step is as we prepare for whatever you have in store for us next. Lord, we love you and in your great and awesome name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about Erie Evangelical Free Church or our ministries, please visit www.eriefree.com or join us in person at 1409 16th Avenue, Erie, Illinois.